Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I wouldn't say we fell in love right away. I think we were, as they call it in the biz, trauma bonding. And then after eight years of being insufferably sober, I started drinking again. Addicts tend to be rather sensitive people. Aren't you Mark Maron? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what happened to you? Hi, this is Anna David. You're listening to Recover Girl, a podcast all about addiction recovery and really healing ourselves, bringing out our darkness so we can find our light. Uh, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Sometimes I release episodes that are in-person interviews with people. Sometimes they're stories from my live storytelling show. And sometimes, like today, they are episodes that were Facebook Live interviews I did that I am now releasing as audio interviews. A word about these, the audio is not as good as it is on other episodes, so please don't judge slash complain. Uh, but it is exciting for me because I get to interview people that I normally wouldn't meet. And I've been so loving doing these Facebook Live interviews. If you want to know even what I'm talking about, go ahead and like my Facebook page. Just go to facebook.com slash Anna B. David, and you will be notified when they take place, but they tend to take place Tuesdays at four o'clock Pacific Standard Time. And if you want to know about all the things that I do, whether that's the storytelling show or the Alexa stop, it's just a little, a little moment of my life where I had to tell Alexis to, Alexa to stop the timer. Anyway, Alexa stop. Sorry, got a little distracted. I'm not going to start recording this over again. All I'm going to say is if you want to know what I'm doing and not necessarily how I'm talking to Alexa, uh, go to AnnaDavidCoaching.com and sign up. Uh, my guest today is Jesse Heffernan. He's a recovery coach in long-term recovery, and he works with Faces and Voices. And he's a nice Midwestern boy who just happens to have a criminal record. Listen to him tell it. Here you go. Love you guys. Here's Jesse Heffernan. Hi, you guys. We are live. I am Anna David. I'm live with Jesse Heffernan. Got it. It's really fun to say. It reminds me a little bit of um, Transparent, um, the Pfeffermans. You watch it? No, I don't. I have not watched that one yet. Um, okay. You have, yeah, but it's that does sound close. No, I usually get Doug Heffernan from King of Queens, UPS driver guy. Oh, nice, nice. No, I like your name. I like the whole name, and more than that, I like what you do which is that you are out there and proud and you work in recovery um, doing a, a lot of advocacy. And that's why what I'm doing is really fun because I get to talk to people like you who I know here on the Facebook, but I have never met before. And I get to look up stuff about you. And now I get to ask you about you. I mean, it's just kind of great. What did, what did you look up? What did you find? You know what? I'm glad you asked because there's not a ton out there. And so the mission of this interview is to get all the scandalous stuff out there. Because to me, you just appear to be like a nice Midwestern, happily married man who works in recovery. 
Yes. Yeah. So Let's the, the dirty details out, okay? Yeah. How much to put out there? Um, well, because we need the next person who interviews you to be like, what? I can't believe yeah. you know that. No. So you are, are you from Wisconsin? I know you live in Wisconsin now. Yes. Born and raised, Appleton, Wisconsin, small town. And Which, tell me, and you work now as both a recovery coach and you work with Faces and Voices of Recovery. Is that right? Yeah, I'd say primarily I'm doing the outreach and empowerment with Faces and Voices of Recovery. And so I, I had my own business uh, a, a year and a half ago. I was doing recovery coaching and consulting and training and whatever. And a lot of that carried into my, my job in between. And then now I'm at Faces and Voices working with doing doing a lot of the same stuff. So I'm, I'm working on the training aspect, um, connecting with all the recovery community organizations across the country, but not so much the one-on-one -on -one coaching anymore. But as I'm sure anyone can attest to, the whenever you put your foot into like helping people, like it doesn't matter if you're a current coach or not, like you're going to get calls and Facebook messages all the right. time. So it just happens. You know? What is recovery coaching? Just because, you know, that doesn't mean being a sober companion, does it? I, I think that people assign different words and, and different terminology to a lot of the same stuff. I mean, like, I, there can be a track, you know, like coaching to certified peer specialist to sober companion, and it all kind of stems off each other. I, I just, I'm a huge advocate for the peer movement in general. I went out to Connecticut and became a recovery coach with CCAR in 2014, and it just blew my mind open. I'm like, you mean there's recovery outside of like the rooms, you know, and, and, and basement meetings and, and really just seeing how the peer movement needs to have its own lane and its own kind of uh, fidelity, if you will. And it's not, you know, over, over glorified sponsorship. It's not, you know, being a counselor. It, it really is its own thing. So I think people just use, you know, same name or similar things for, for the same thing. But you aren't working as a recovery coach. Are you actually working with people who are trying to get sober and need to stay sober? That's what I don't know. Yeah. I mean, a, a coach, you know, as someone, when I was doing it, I was working with individuals and with families. And so a lot of times it was families calling, right? They'd be like, Hey, you know, my loved one is whatever. And I need you to fix them or I need you to fix my kid. And I'd say, well, you're the one who called. Let's, let's start with where you're at. You know, let's start with, what you've got going on. And oftentimes that led to conversations around, you know, boundaries and, you know, moving away from that language of like tough love and enabling. I'm like, you know what, at the end of the day, we live in a world where as parents, they, they legit have to think about if their kid's going to be alive tomorrow or not. Right. And they're going to have to live with, you know, whatever that is inside as if they did, if they followed their heart or if they followed like what some book said, you know? And, uh, I always encouraged them. Like, like I was working with one family and, and I said, okay, so you're not going to give money outright, but you're going to do it this way. And I come back the next week and their heads down and they're like, we gave them money. Yeah. I'm like, well, that's fine. You know, like we'll just readdress. So coaches do that, you know, just constantly, you know, moving myself to where they're at rather than than expecting them like, well, here's my regimented, you know, program of what it's going to look like from beginning to end. It's how can I connect with you where you are? You know, I, I know this stuff with people. So the same thing with individuals, you know? Yeah. I mean, and that's the whole, you know, big thing in treatment right now is meet the client where they're at. 
that, you know, when I was getting my, I was doing my KDAC and that was like what they kept saying over and over again. You know, another thing you said that I have a friend who's an interventionist and this is not to cast uh, dispersions on the people you were just talking about, but she says when she goes in to do an intervention, the sickest person in the room is never the addict. It's always somebody else. And that's who she identifies first. Right. Um, so, and so when you said peer support, what yeah. does that mean? Does that mean just not a doctor, not a counselor? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, we as people with lived experience have, hey, Ryan, um, at first I just saw when his thing came up, total tangent, it just said, I, I love you both to pie. And I'm like, is that an invitation? What's going on, Ryan? Let's go have pie. Ryan and I literally talked 10 minutes ago. So, I and we didn't talk about pie. And I forgot, um, <laughs> just talking about how I get in fights because I, I like to use the word addict and a lot of people disagree. We can get into it, Jesse, if you want to get in a fight with me because, um, because nobody agrees with me in the movement. But tell me what you mean by peer support and then we can fight. Right. So, yeah, again, peer support. So someone with lived experience, whether that be a person who's an addict or a substance use, has a substance use disorder um, or a lived family, a person with just some kind of lived experience, you know, and connecting with them. I think that peers are what started back in the day, you know, um, and then eventually through the bureaucracy and the, the government and all that stuff it became counseling. You know, right. when I was in when I was in treatment, you know, almost everyone wanted to become a counselor, right? Because they wanted to give back, they wanted to help. I think oftentimes what they really wanted to do is to be a peer. They really wanted to be a coach. They wanted to connect with people and not be restricted in a sense. And and so there's kind of this thing going on right now with the peer and coaching movement, like what does supervision look like? What do ethical standards and practices look like? And the organization I work for, Faces and Voices, we actually have a peer accreditation system. So my friend Joseph Sanchez, he works with the peer support services and says like, well, here's what those things look like. And here's how you connect with all those folks. So, you know, I, I think that again, peer is just another word interchangeable with coach. So what if somebody wanted watching, wanted to be a peer support uh, coach, a peer support, yeah. uh, is that a paid position? Um, how would they go about doing that? It's, it's really different state to state and sometimes community to community. So in some places, like Wisconsin, for example, we have a state accreditation for peer specialists. Those folks can get paid and they're Medicaid reimbursable. Our recovery coaches, though, are not reimbursable. So it's almost becoming like this, this vocational track, like you become a coach and you can become a certified peer specialist. Then you can go on to like bigger and brighter things, right? Um, and, and so... Some states recognize certain curriculum and others don't. And, it, and it's just kind of like this weird mixed bag no matter where you go. Um, some states are really great about paying. Yes, certified peer recovery. And there's certified peer recovery specialists too. Yeah, there's so many different names out there. And you're going to get variations of payment from state to state, you know. And so for anybody who's joining us late, I'm Anna David. I am in long-term recovery. I write books about addiction. I have a podcast called Recover Girl about addiction. And you may be hearing this on Recover Girl because, Jesse, I don't know if I told you, but I'm now releasing these as podcast episodes. You're getting, for every word you say, it's multiplying. So that's terribly exciting without you having to talk twice as fast. Um, and I'm here with Jesse Heffernan, and he works with Faces and Voices, 
And um, Brian is giving me a really hard time because he enjoys doing that. And um, have you worked in treatment since you've been sober? I've gone back and um, spoken a few times. I've gone in and I've done, um, you know, some recovery meetings and institutions and stuff like that. And, and those are honestly like looking back on the span of things, like some of my favorite um, meetings were in prisons and in institutions and stuff like that. And um, so, no, I, I really like, you know, I learned when I was trying to go to college, like I just don't, it just doesn't work for me. It just that, that, that world and that environment, like I thought that's what I wanted to be too, but, and then I found this peer movement and I realized like, this is where I fit in, you know, this is where I can really excel and, and, and reach the most people. So I think that there's, there's room for peers and the peer movement and the treatment movement to fit together. And some places are embracing that really well. And some places they're not, you know, they see it um, as a threat in a sense. Can you help educate my anyone? Yeah. 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 Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Christopher, and, and everyone who's chiming in except for Ryan, who's giving me a hard time. Kidding. We'll do the attic thing. Should we do the attic thing? That you know fun. what? Only if Ryan's going to join in. I have a talk that I give um, that I've been giving at treatment centers, and I, yesterday I gave one gave it at a high school, and I'm going to be giving it in November with um, alongside Tony Robbins, and it's basically about how I think labels are good. And the label addict is a label we should be using despite what the Associated Press says because we're out there changing the public perception of it. Um, but whatever, I can link to that talk. You and I don't need to get into it right now. Um, I'd much rather hear about you. So you look like a pretty clean, aside from the tattoos, and I think I'm seeing some like, you know, some of those like hardcore earring situations. I forget what those are called. You look like a clean-cut guy. What was your addiction like? That's really interesting. I don't feel like that. Um, I mean, my, you know, active addiction for me, I, I think, you know, that it goes, <laughs> I th I look back before that. Um, I think I think a lot of the root of this for me was um, was trauma. I think that the behaviors were there before the substances were there, um, you know, and, and so, like, I mean, it was just constantly selling out. It was constantly just, you know, looking for attention. It was constantly trying to fill a void. And I think the thing about finding substances, it wasn't so much about the substance itself. I mean, there was certainly, like, self-medication in that. But what was more important was that I got connected with a community. And, okay. and we all had our woundedness, and we were all freaking toxic for each other. But it didn't matter, you know. Like, we connected. We had something in common. And I could bond with people who had similar woundedness. And we just exacerbated that, you know, we just, you know, it was just horrible and horrible. And I remember there was, I mean, yeah, there were situations where there were, you know, it was life threatening, it was in the wrong place at the wrong time, all the time it felt. Um, you know, at the end of it though, it just felt like it was so low. It just felt like um, I didn't exist, you know? And the only thing that existed was hopefully feeling something or seeing something that, you know, I could connect with um, through substances. And um, I eventually had the law, it was, it was through law enforcement that my intervention came through. So much like now I'm a great networker. And so I was great at like hooking people up who are wearing wires with my drug dealers. And nice. uh, yeah, they loved me for that. Um, 
So you and got so, busted and you agreed to cooperate. Is that what happened? No, I was, I was like the third party. So I, I got, I got nailed for um, party to the crime of delivery of such and such. Okay. So like just being a middleman, you know, no flea and willfully breaking the law landed me some felonies. And yes, they, they wanted me to cooperate and, and there was honestly a point where I did, you know, like I, I, I wore a wire to one of my friend's places and he didn't have anything on him. And then later he got busted. And um, my name was only the, one of the few names that came up in his report as identifying him as a dealer. So of course there was this huge splinter, like with all the using friends and I became a target and, and a narc and a mark and all those things. And um, you know, that was one of the scary things of like, I went to treatment kind of like a half hour away from where I live now. But early in recovery, I came back to Appleton and I was scared. You know, I'm like, who am I going to run into? What are they going to have to say about it? Um, and, and honestly, it freaked me out a lot. You know, it really freaked me out. How terrified were you the night that you had to wear the wire? Oh, so the DEA agents were complete pricks. I mean, they were just in it. They're like, they made it very clear. I was like this small fish in a much bigger pond. And they wanted to just like, use me and throw me to the side with like, you know, the rest of the scrap pile. And, um, I was pretty freaked out, you know, but I guess one of the things that I look back on it, like, it doesn't matter who it was. Like if my mom was dealing and I knew I was going to stay out of prison and be able to continue to use, I would have sold her out. You know, I, I, during my recovery, there was actually someone who showed up at recovery meetings and he started calling me out during them. And, and just saying like, oh, if it wasn't for you, this, that, and the other thing. And it, and it was actually one of those defining moments in recovery where I said, one, I find out you're dealing now. I'm going to call my friends in the DEA. Like, I don't give a shit, you know, like it just doesn't fly anymore. And as far as what I did back then, like, yeah, you know, like I would have sold anybody out. You know, my stuff was more important. Well, yeah, well, yeah. See, those see, guys. Those guys. Ew. Sorry, there's a terrible echo. I don't know if you hear it. You know, those guys who were, you know, if they got busted, wouldn't they have done the same thing, those guys that you were scared to run into? I mean, they probably did, some of them. Right. The fact that they're still out, I'm like, how did that happen? Yeah. They were, you know, better at hiding it or whatever. You know, so, I mean, yeah, there was a lot of, I mean, it was a, it was a life run by fear in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Um, and I didn't really know how to deal with that. Yeah, I, um, and so then did you get sober? So you never went to jail because you cooperated and then you went I, to. No, they said they want me to keep doing it. And I said, screw that. Like that was way too much anxiety and too much work. You yeah. just send me the court papers. And then uh, I started going through the court process and I would call into court like a job. I'd be like, you know what? I don't have a ride today. Can we reschedule? And courts don't work like that, believe it or not. And, uh, so I ended up getting some bail jumpings and going to court off and on or going to jail for like a week. And my mom bailed me out. And um, I remember, you know, so in, in my current recovery, um, I like to think that there's these windows, right? There's like these windows of clarity, like in spite of everything that's going on. And so I had one of those when my, my mom and my brother bailed me out of jail. You know, I was driving back home with them. They were giving me the third degree. I was going to stop using, I was going to get a job. I was going to pay her back and everything. And I can honestly say like in that window, I was like, yeah, this is messed up. Like I'm going to go to prison over this. Like I got a lot of serious stuff hanging over my head. 
I'm going to change my life tomorrow. I'm going to like just do it all. And um, I'm like, all right, let's 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 get going. And, and my brother drops me off in my roommate's house. And what's the first thing I do? You know, I go and get high. Yeah. You know? And so I'm, I'm a firm believer um, in that, you know, what I want to see in the recovery world is that when someone has that window, that a real life person, not an app, not a phone call, but a real life person is there helping navigate the system. Because even back then in the 90s, I mean, I couldn't imagine my, my mom, my brother trying to navigate the system, much less now. Yeah. You know? and so, so we got to meet people when those windows happen. Hello from DC. What yeah. up, Cedric? Hey. Um, yeah, hey, Cedric. And yeah, I think, um, and, and Cinda. And I did want to go back to something that Tanya said. I, Tanya, Tania, I think it's Tanya. Um, the connection with friends with the same problems is part of the addiction. Never really thought about it that way. I, you know, I, I agreed when you said that, that I, that occurred to me too. And I don't know about you or, you know, you, Jesse or Tanya or Cinda or Cedric or anyone else paying attention, but it starts off that way and then it gets really isolating. And so all those friends that that was your common bond are, I don't know anybody who kind of got sober and still had those people around. Do you know what I mean? Were you alone in the end? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, I think it was a process of both, you know, just completely withdrawing and, and just burning the bridges with people, you know, like, yeah. I mean, I wasn't, in spite of what I thought, I wasn't as prolific as a, of a dealer as I thought I was. And um, so I, I just, I never really was able to contribute or do things. And so like, you know, at the end, yes. I mean, I had warrants out for my arrest. I was just hiding out in the house, have everything brought to me. Um, you know, so it, it really did become an isolated world. And, and even the community I thought I had, like, you know, I I just gotten rid of all that too. You know, so I mean, it wasn't like I was leaving this world of, you know, friendship and rainbows to go into like begrudgingly into recovery. Um, but it was still a difficult process even getting into there and finding a community, you know? Yeah, I mean, the one thing too, that the community, it's it just sort of goes back to sort of the Bruce Alexander Rat Park experiment, you know, about that, where yep. basically people think that it's drugs that are causing addiction and actually when he did this experiment in case anybody doesn't know about rat park he made this amazing park with like food and toys and 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 rats of the opposite sex and then he put morphine and water and then he put these other rats like all alone and the rats that were all alone with nothing to amuse them got addicted to the morphine and the ones who had all the like fun sex and toys and all of that didn't um, you know, so this idea that it's community that's so important yeah. in terms of getting recovery and staying in recovery. Would you say that's a crucial part of what you do? Huge. Yeah. And I mean, like, I, I remember the feeling of, of being like, you know, being at a, at a recovery function and being the one with like, you know, the, the newest member there and like this horde of people coming up to give me a hug. And I'm like, what is going on? What's all this positive attention? But okay. just feeling that connection. And I, you know, I remember going to like, you know, the first recovery meeting and seeing a guy cause I was a big metal head and I, I hated anything that wasn't metal and uh, did like, you know, tats up and down and like long hair. He was a drummer in a metal band. I said, I can do this. He's here. He's got some time. It's possible. And uh, so I just, now like the organization I work for faces and voices, like that's what we do. We want to empower, 
and we want to connect people with communities. We want to build them up. We want to, you know, create, help create what they need to look like within the communities themselves. And so it's not like a national agency coming in and being like, this is the cookie cutter model. It's so many different models and so many different ways that a community can respond to this. The most important part for us is that they're supported. We help them find funding. We help them find, you know, just other connection in the community and mentorship too. Um, I think that's what matters so that we can have those places. So you can have multiple pathways so you can find the person you connect with. Yeah. I remember the very first recovery meeting I was taken to this, uh, this, first of all, I, I was taken to this meeting and I, the, I only went uh, with the agreement that I would not have to say a word. And then somebody gave me a prayer to read and I did something I've never heard someone do ever, which as I said, no, and like walked out. I didn't know what was going on. But I remember people giving me their numbers and I was so freaked out. I didn't understand because they were nice people and they weren't losers. And this didn't make sense to me. I didn't interested in connecting with me because that hadn't happened to me in a really long time. Um, so, so what would you say to people who are struggling with addiction or have family members who are struggling with addiction? I, I think that, you know, I experienced and have experienced with other people that you don't, you don't stop. You don't give up. You know, you don't say, well, you know, you've had your 500th chance. It's, it's, it's over. We can't do it. So when I was in, when I was in treatment, I remember there was this guy, he actually grew up in the same neighborhood I did. And, uh, we're hanging out in the kitchen at treatment, you know, and he comes in, he's like, this is the last time I can be here. This is my 12th inpatient treatment. And the state literally told me, and this is his words, that if I don't get it this time, I'm going to be deemed incurable and they're not going to fund me anymore. So imagine you know, having gone through 12 treatments, imagine what could be going on internally with that person. And then someone saying, we're going to deem you incurable. That is a hundred kinds of messed up to me. Right. Right. Um, well, well, but I mean, but, sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to say, like, I, I feel more like we need these opportunities where you can go in as many times as you want and get connected with resources. And I get it. Like you still have to earn some things back. It's not like you go to treatment and like, you know, here's 500 bucks to find a place. You have to work towards those things, but I believe everyone should be given those chances. And I think similar to what I heard you say in uh, the interview with, um, with Anthony from Rise Together, right? Like it should just be affordable and available to everyone when they're ready for it. And the right. same thing with family members, like, no, you don't have to be, you know, giving in to what a person wants, but you can learn boundaries. And, and really, like like you said earlier, with an intervention, oftentimes it's about learning the family dynamics than it is just the person themselves. Right. You know, so a ton of education comes into this. Yeah, and there are 12-step programs for family members, and I think a lot of family members will say, but I, I don't understand. I don't have a problem. Why should I be the one who has to go? And it's like, well, if this, if this is a problem that's plaguing you, it may make you feel better, so don't look at it as some sort of a punishment. Right. Um, we're going to meet a lot of people who are in the same situation. Yeah. Um, uh, and so Richard is chiming in. John is chiming in. Christopher, we love that you guys are talking to us. Uh, we're going to get close to wrapping up. If you have any specific questions for Jesse, please put them in the comments. If people want to get involved. Oh, who is that? Skittles, one of three cats here. So 
Whenever I'm doing these interviews, she always jumps up and wants to be like, what are you doing? I can tell you why that is as a, as, as a cat lover. Yeah. Uh, cats think that you're talking to them because the cat doesn't understand the phone, let alone Facebook Live. And so she's like, why is daddy talking to me? And yet he's like, not looking at me. I better go see what's up. That's what's happening. But you I, never knew. That's good. Yeah, I like that a lot. A cat didn't tell me that. I read it in a book, but it. it you know. um, so if people want to be involved with voices uh, and voices, what can they do? Faces and voices, what can they do? So one, you know, faces and recovery. Faces and Voices of Recovery.org. Um, just, you know, look and see if there is a recovery community organization in your area. I, I'd say, like, contact them first. Contact your local RCO first. Find out what they need. Find out how you can connect. And, and I think one of the things, too, in this new world of, like, there's a million great ideas, right? There's a million, you know, nonprofits popping up all the time. And I just, I strongly... Um, invite people like when you have one of those ideas like you know maybe not start up like a brand new facebook page and try to make your thing the number one thing like see if you can connect it with someone else's because that's what's going to build you know I, I think even from a funding structure standpoint they're looking for more collaboration than they are for like the newest brightest idea right you know and so we want to we want to model what connection looks like and i think faces and voices does that i think that uh yeah, it's true. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt your thought process, but I'm excited when people are chiming in, even if it's something we just talked about a second ago. Yeah. So so, so if somebody's listening or watching and they're going, well, I really want to write about my recovery or I really want to start a, um, you know, a page, would you say, no, reach out to me instead, we'll feature you on Faces and Voices, or, or what would you tell them? Well, I think people still should do that, and they should find a way to get connected. And so... You know, we can we can definitely we have a place and, and I know there's a lot of uh, pages that have people's stories on it. Yeah. Um, what I what I'm hoping to do in, in my you know new position here is, is I think that we have the opportunity to showcase um, what communities are doing. You know, so what does it look like for, um, you know, Minnesota Recovery Connection? I saw that post come out there. Um, what does it look like for ProAct in Philadelphia that's going to have a. Uh, 26,000 person March coming up this month. I mean, I was just wow. in Salt Lake City last Saturday. Hey, what's going on? Um, you know, we had a 1,500 person March. It was the recovery rally for um, recovery month, you know, and so two miles around downtown Salt Lake City, you know, and, and I think that every one of those people should have a place to share their story. They could all start up their own gig and they should all be connecting with each other. You know, yeah. there's only so many of us advocates, right, that have this opportunity, this this blessing, this, you know, this forum to be able to do this stuff. There needs to be, like, hundreds of you and I. There needs to be thousands of you and I out there. And hopefully that's what we're building. Well, and it's, as somebody who's actually been at this as long as I have, how much has it changed? You know, when I first started talking about recovery openly, there was obviously nobody doing it. And in the last six years i've just watched it blossom into this crazy movement would you say you've seen the same thing yeah i mean like again like i have I, my mind really got opened up in 2014 when i found out about this stuff hey what's up omar oh love oh, him. yeah um 
So, I, yeah, I mean, I, I love to look at the history of all these things. And that's what I love about Faces and Voices of Recovery is that, I mean, this was 2001 that they threw down and said, like, no, we need to be really vocal and advocate for these kind of things. And so they have the longevity and the history and the experience. So to be a part of an organization like that, I mean, I'm just, you know, I think it's, it couldn't ask for much more. And so I think that we're at this kind of turning point now. You know, and, and like with a lot of social justice movements, we're going to hit something pretty soon here and we're going to find our stride. And I'm just hoping that uh, all the advocates, all the organizations, um, all the players in this game can, can kind of collectively get together on this, you know, and, and have the same voice. Um, well, we, we never will if Ryan and I keep fighting about the word addict and whether or not it's okay. Um, and he, he, he put in a comment earlier that you'd shred me if we got into this conversation. So I, I'm going to bow out before that happens. Um, but Jesse, this has been such a pleasure. I'm so glad to get to know you like this. I look forward to many more, um, online and po possibly in-person conversations as we sort of continue to fight this. You're in, where are you? I'm in LA. You're in LA. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's. There's definitely talk about, you know, we want to get more Arcos on the West Coast. We have some Seattle and um, Oregon. And I think we have, I think there's maybe one or two in California. But, I mean, it's such a dense population that, you know, I know we're going to be reaching out to you and Ryan and other folks and saying, like, how do we start building, you know, these recovery community organizations on the West Coast? You know, because there's, there's just a need for it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot. There's a very strong recovery community here, and um, I'm down to get involved. Richard had a question. Let's address that. Um, always wondered why people in I've always wondered why people in recovery count the days that they've been in recovery. In my opinion, I think you should just forget about how long you've been off of the drugs. What do you say, Jesse? I think it's a. I think it's a way of like for me, you know because there's, there's a discipline aspect to this, right? And there's, there's almost a, a, a gratifying aspect. And there's also, I think, from someone who's, you know, a survivor of trauma and someone who's like given up on a ton of things in my life, you know, to be able to, to say like, you know, I was a little bit more adamant about it early on. I'm like, I need that color key tag and I'm going to get that one. And, and it became kind of this goal setting process. Mm -hmm. And uh, so try to shorten this story up. So I'm not a big Packer fan, but one of my former bosses was. And and he said, like, one of the, the, the coach for the Packers, regardless if they won or lost, after every game, they would do something called stack success. They would just go quarter by quarter and say, like, here were our successes in that game. And, and then they would be able to carry that momentum, regardless of what happened, into the next one. And as a nonprofit, you know, we were always, at the end of the year, right, we'd do, like, our strategic planning and be like, what did we do good last year? And so we now had all these stack successes. And so if you think about it that way, every day you're stacking success. Every day. And I think recovery is about setting yourself up for success and it's about probability. And if mm -hmm. you're aligning yourself within probability, the potential of staying in recovery is that much greater. So I think there's like a science equation somewhere. If there's anybody out there that can do that, like X, Y to the ninth power or something. Um, but that's what it is. It's, it's success. And we need to focus on the successes. Yes. Yes. And, and I agree. I mean, I think that it, it, 
uh, people will say, oh, you know, the person who got up earliest today is the sober the longest time. And I don't really agree with that. I think, um, I, you know, I think that there can be a lot of time shame that people can feel, and that's unfortunate. But I also think that t- sober time does mean anything, and people should celebrate it, and people should feel good about it. And it is a major accomplishment. Um, I agree. And like, as Missy just said, you know, you know, as she thinks every day that she survived this long, and others can too. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is when you came in and you heard people say, you know, I'm sober, first of all, three months, you were like, what? And then they three years and then you hear things like 30 years. It just seems, you know, I think that is that does inspire people that it's possible and that not only possible, but somewhat likely if you follow certain steps. Yeah. And and I think we're we're changing the language, too, right, where it's not like. You just count your days of sobriety, right? Like you're in recovery when you say you are. And so people thinking that their reoccurrence of symptoms has been like, well, that's my cutoff date. And now I need to start a new one. That works for a lot of people. And I've also invited people like, well, how, when was the first time you got into recovery? Well, like six years ago. Well, you've been in recovery for six years, you know, and, and that's what we need to look at is it's like you said, we need to deflate the shame. We need to deflate this ego aspect amongst different recovery pathways and these pissing in each other's sandboxes you know like we're trying to save lives here like you know get over it and and help celebrate someone's recovery yeah well said well jesse this is a pleasure thank you thank you for doing it Anybody who is watching every Tuesday at four o'clock Pacific Standard Time, I do a Facebook Live interview. So if you like my page, you will be notified when that happens. If you have any questions for me, you can message me here. If you have any questions for Jesse or want to get involved with Faces and Voices, message him. I still can't do the arrows the right way. I'm, I've got issues. Um, but anyway, thank you, Jesse. Thank you, everybody, for chiming in, Marcy and Missy and Christopher and Valerie and everybody else. See you next week. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye.